You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. On Brave New Radio, I am your professor, David Kirk Philp, along with Dr. Esteban. Former professor Marconi. Yes, and that is he. And here we are having a great day, providing awesome information for you. We're going to have a guest in a moment, Anthony Martini, CEO of Royalty Exchange. But let's just jump right into it, Dr. Esteban. I guess we ought to. So we're glad to have you. And uh, what inspired you with your background of an artist and manager and so on? What inspired you to get involved with the company? Uh, with Royalty Exchange? I, I mean, basically, you know, my whole uh, career has always been based on how, how can I empower artists or how, you know, how can I, I best fight for the, the, the side, you know, fight on the side of the artist coming from back in the day when I started out as an artist, learning the business and then transitioned into management. I was, you know, as a manager, you're always an advocate for the artist and kind of being the buffer and playing the bad guy, whatever you have to do to protect the artists and, and create opportunities. And then from there, you know, I transitioned into, uh, I started my own label. And while I had my, my record label, I tried to structure contracts and, and agreements to be more like partnerships and try and, uh, you know, like make sure the artists were always dealt with fairly. And, you know, the terms were really easy and transparent. And, uh, you know, I just realized at a certain point, I couldn't sign every artist out there. So I could, I, I'm limited in, in how many different types of creatives I could help. And then when I saw uh, Royalty Exchange as a platform, uh, a buddy of mine who's an investor in the, in the company originally, he, uh, he, he sent it to me. It was like, what do you think of this platform? And, and, and I checked it out and I thought it was amazing. You know, I thought it was what's missing in the music business and immediately wanted to get involved. And so I originally started out just kind of, you know, as a, almost like consulting and, and, and helping uh, advise and bring in deals and, and do certain things like that and just fell in love with the model and, and what they were doing. And then from there, just kind of quickly uh, escalated into becoming CEO. And now I run the company. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, but, but like I said, it all stems from my uh, values towards just, just believing in artists should have control of their destiny both creative and financial destiny and a lot of the creative destiny is determined by their financial destiny and because you know we all know artists will sign deals because mm -hmm. of money and they know there's a deal but they do it because there's no other option and so if royalty exchange could present an alternative option then maybe artists will sign less deals mm -hmm. so uh, for our listeners we should say that uh, well maybe you should describe it instead of me what Royalty Exchange is? So Royalty Exchange is the world's largest platform for people to buy and sell music royalties. Um, and what that 
really mean, you know, a lot of people have seen the, the headlines out there, you know, Bob Dylan catalog, or they, all these big catalog deals, hundreds of millions of dollars, hypnosis, round hill, all that kind of stuff. You know, the difference is we're, we're in that space, but the difference between us and those other companies are, they are buying your catalog. You, you no longer own it after that. You're giving up all your rights. Royalty exchange, what we do, we don't buy anything. We simply connect the investors with the sellers who are the artists and we help them achieve the highest price for their catalog. But they actually, even after a deal is done, they're not giving up ownership of anything. Basically the investor is just tapping into your royalty stream for a certain period of time. And then after that period of time is over, the royalty stream goes back to you, but you never give up ownership. And so we think that's a more powerful model and a more, you know, it's a more artist friendly model. You, you again, like ownership is key. If you have ownership, you could choose what's best for you, whether you want to sell your whole catalog or not, like that's up to you, but, but we believe there should be a choice. It shouldn't be a all or nothing proposition. So if there's a way to say like, let me leverage this IP that I've created and you know, get some financial freedom out of that without having to lose ownership of it. And then I could eventually leave it to my kids or my family or, or, or then sell it down the line, you know, when, when I choose, uh, we present that option. So we're, we're in that catalog space, but our model is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So it's basically uh, an auction house in the sense uh, that you have to somehow get enough investors or enough people who want to buy the material. And usually that works with supply and demand. The best, you know, the best piece of art was going to go for more money and attract the bigger mm -hmm. dealers than the, uh, than the small piece. How do you do it where you are, and rightly so, it's a great idea that any artist can really put their possessions up? Uh, well, part, you know, part, of, part of the demand is having... Um, you know, having the network with the, with the people that will, that are creating the demand, you know what I mean? And so that's, that's part of what we, one of the biggest uh, benefits to what Royalty Exchange does is we have more investors registered on our platform than anyone in the world. We have, we have almost 30,000 investors. And these are all people that specifically, you know, signed up, created an account because they want to invest in, in music royalties. So, you know, we know we have, we have the demand built in. You, you bring something to us, we have investors. We can't even keep up with the amount of deals. Uh, the other side of it is, you know, being that we're open to anyone on both the investor and seller side, you know, not every investor is a huge uh, pension fund or VC or, you know, like some of them are just individuals, you know, and, and they want to be in an alternative asset or they just think, you know, music royalties are interesting and cool and they want to get in it. So they're not looking to necessarily spend a million dollars or a few hundred thousand dollars. They might want to just get in, kind of dip their toe in the water for, for a few thousand dollars. So that helps even on the artist side, you don't have to be, you know, Lady Gaga to have to, to be able to do a catalog deal. You could be a, you know, independent artist, a songwriter that, you know, maybe he's just generating a decent amount of money and, and like, it's nothing crazy, but you have an asset that is going to be attractive to somebody. Right. And, you know, on your side as well, where if you're, if you're a creative and maybe you're earning, you know, a few thousand dollars a year or 10,000, $20,000 a year, that's cool. Like it's, you know, it's, it's probably a nice little check when you get it in the mailbox and you're like, Oh, like, cool. I got, you know, $5,000 this quarter or whatever. 
but you, it's not really, you can't do much with it. So what, what we do is, you know, you come to royalty exchange, we'll give you 10 years worth of that upfront, you know? And so in a sense where instead of getting in drips and drabs, you now could get a lump sum and, and maybe that helps you go put a down payment on a house. You could go build that home studio. You could, you know, invest it in your own career or do whatever you want with it, where it's, it's a lot more helpful at that point than just spreading that out across, you know, a long period of time where, you know, you're kind of wasting the money. Um, so, so even on the smaller end of the spectrum for, for artists and songwriters that, you know, aren't these A-list celebrities that you hear, you know, read about in the headlines, we actually have investors that are looking for those type of deals too. So, so, you know, it ranges from a couple thousand dollars up to a couple million dollars. All right. Okay. So for example, Dave and I, own the trademark, Music Biz 101 and more. Mm -hmm. How do you determine the valuation if we come to you and say we'd like to uh, sell this for a certain, or lease it out for a certain amount of time? Um, well, you know, we have a team that's a lot smarter than me that, that runs the numbers on uh, all these things. But, you know, it, I mean, the, 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 the basics of it would be we'd analyze whatever, whatever statements or whatever historical revenue you may have had from it. Mm -hmm. And then we'll create a, a financial model of what that's worth over the next 20 years, 30 years. And then from that point, we'll, we'll do it, uh, make a determination with you of like, hey, here's, here's the model. Here's how we came up with it. Here's the sources of revenue and all these things. And, and then we'll discuss it with you of like, we think the pricing should be this based on the data that we have. We, we've done over a thousand deals, which is, you know, way more than anyone in, the, in this space. So we have the data to know uh, where we could compare it to similar things. And we say like, all right, based on, based on historical data, based on this, based on that, we think you should price it at this. Ultimately, it's up to you to decide if you agree with that or not. Mm -hmm. And if you agree, great, let's, let's list it. If you wanna change the price and you, know, you think it's worth a little more, okay. You know, we could list it at that as well. Ultimately, it's your choice on how you want to price it, we'll, we'll give a recommendation where we think it's going to sell. It's sort of like, you look at it almost like selling a house, right? You know what I mean? Like there, you know, you kind of go off comps in your neighborhood, you go off other sales data that you're seeing. If you overprice it too much, you're not going to get any bids. You're not going to get any buyers coming in. If you price it under a little bit, it's going to encourage more bids and you probably create a bidding war and you're going to get more than what you even listed it for. And that's, that's sort of our goal is, we want to increase engagement so that you get paid more money, which ultimately helps. Like our, we're, we're, we're probably the only company that's aligned with the creator side because, you know, we only make money if you make money. It, we're, and, and since we're not the one buying it, we're not trying to drive down the price. We're actually trying to drive up the price. So, you know, where every other uh, person in this space is trying to get a value, they're trying to buy it for the lowest price possible so they can make more money. We actually are on the artist side where it's like, no, we want you to make, as much money as possible because that's how we make money. Mm -hmm. Okay, I remember, um, oh God, maybe 12, about 20 years ago, Donny Osmond was on the uh, over-the-counter stock exchange and he mm -hmm. was going for about six or seven dollars. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Charlie Koppelman, I don't know if you knew Charlie, but he started his scrutinization where he took like David Bowie's catalog and he started to do the basically the same tea, put yeah. value on it as well. Mm -hmm. So it isn't something that's that's new. 
But to me, it's uh, exciting because it's something that goes all the way down to maybe the, like you say there, the guy that was singing backup or fifth backup on a uh, whatever tune, and he wants to sell those rights, mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, it's extremely interesting to me. Now you take, obviously you take a percentage of the transaction. Yep. Now do you take a trend, you don't take a percentage then of, let's say the deal is uh, whatever, 80%, you don't take 10 or 15% of that forever. Or for no, the it's, a, it's a one time, just the whatever, the, whatever the transaction is, we take the fee off that and then it's that's done. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, Dave, you thinking? Yeah, yeah, a uh, couple questions I have. Um, we also, by the way, had Dee Dee Burns on from uh, Royalty Exchange a while ago. She's still with the company? She is. She's a you know she's she's a rock star at the company, so you know <laughs> makes sense that she was on 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 the show. Yeah, yeah, like uh, at least three years ago or something. But she was great. But you mentioned all the uh, investors and you have uh, the artists, and you uh, need lists of both in order to stay in business. Mm -hmm. Who is out there making those relationships and putting that that together so that you constantly have an influx of of music or, or, or things to sell and then people to sell to? Uh, well, you're looking at one of the people, <laughs> uh, which is, which is why, um, you know, I got involved in such a, a large role with the companies because, you know, like I, again, I saw the opportunity coming from the music side of the business. I had never heard of royalty exchange before I got involved with them. And I thought that was, you know, pretty crazy that this company is, has, was doing all this business and you know i'd never heard of them and most people that i knew never heard of them and but it was mostly word of mouth and and, and kind of like referrals and people just coming to the website or you know through google searches and stuff like that has been a, a large portion of the business but you know what we started to focus on now since i came aboard is yeah how do we how do we really uh you know make inroads and aggressively start pursuing these leads of people that we think would be good candidates um, you know, I have a, a pretty large network in the music business just from my career, uh, you know, throughout that with managers and artists and even just labels and publishers and all that. But, um, you know, we have, we have a sales team internally that's doing some of that and, and things like this where, you know, uh, a podcast or a different interview or press hits where infiltrating sort of like the music business and the spaces where creators are looking and reading and listening you know, that hopefully spreads the word a little more and, you know, people come check us out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember one particular success story for you guys going back a number of years now. I think it was the manager of Cage the Elephant had also partially written one or two songs. And he, like, like you said earlier, wanted to buy a house or something. And so through Royalty Exchange, he was able to auction off his portion of those songs and get you know six figures back you know so do you have do you have another some other success stories that you can share with us we have a lot you know we have a lot of success stories we you know we, like i said we've done over a thousand deals so there's i think you know a thousand success stories there but um i mean well, well one in particular that stands out uh is uh we had this producer who you know, had some, some decent success. He was a producer, a hip hop producer that 
you know, not crazy huge hits, but was, 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 was making a good living. Um, and he initially, we did a deal with him for just a tiny piece of his catalog. He, you know, he ended up just putting a couple songs in there. None of his bigger songs. It was just kind of like, you know, let me just try and, you know, test the waters here and see what kind of money I could get from this. And we, you know, we ended up getting him, I think it was like $180,000 for, for like, you know, a few of these songs that weren't even his, his main songs. And he was so happy that he came back and then put a bunch of the rest of his catalog in there. And then we got him like $900,000 for that. So within like a year, we made this guy a million dollars, which was more than he was making anywhere else. And what he ended up doing was he bought a bunch of real estate and he, he like, he lives in, uh, in, I think it was, uh, somewhere in Pennsylvania, not, not Philly, but like outside there. And he ended up buying, um, you know, almost like a whole commercial block where the real estate, he bought a bunch of stores, he bought some apartments and all this. And so now like essentially this guy is making now most of his money from real estate because he took his, you know, the, the, the money he was making as a producer and the IP, he leveraged his, his IP to now go invest in a business that's making him passive income where now he could actually just focus on his artist career not have to worry about being driven by making a certain amount of money to, to pay his bills. He has these other investments now that are paying his bills that came from his creative IP. Um, so, you know, and he's, he's talked a lot about different, uh, you know, real estate investments and things that he, he, he's been getting into, but that really stemmed from him, you know, getting a check from, from an investor based on his, uh, his songwriting. Mm -hmm. What's the, uh, can you think of a deal that you thought would never sell? This stuff is not going to sell. And you were extremely surprised. Um, well, there's never, I never really feel like something's not going to sell again, just because the investor there's, you know, there's so much demand for this that pretty much we can't even put enough deals in the pipeline, but there's been some just interesting deals that I was kind of like, Oh, wow. Like that. I never would even expect that to even, I wouldn't even know that could be a thing. Like we've sold, um, Listerine royalties, you know, uh, like apparently one of the founders of Listerine had in his agreement that, you know, forever, there will be a small percentage of the royalty from the Listerine patent passed down to his family. And this was like his great, 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 great grandson or whatever that was kind of had like 0.2% of Listerine. They're kind of like, what the fuck am I doing with this? Like, let me just, let me sell this. And again, I didn't even realize, like, I know we could sell all types of royalties, but we'd never done it something like that. And, uh, yeah, it sold and people were really interested in it. So that was cool. We, we've done Ben and Jerry's royalties. Um, we've done uh, Star Trek, like, you know, some things like that in TV film. That's a little, you know, it's similar to the, the music wheelhouse, but some of like these products, you know, like, a, like I said, like a Ben and Jerry's or a Listerine, those were interesting because, you know, it's treated the same way, but you don't see as much of those. And, and it's, it's, cool to see the interest from the investor side and, and things like that because it's you know mm -hmm. it's, oh i could own a piece of the listerine like yeah let's go huh. do you uh do you vet the investors before they start auction yeah we, uh well our investors you don't have to be accredited so there's no like uh minimum amount in your bank account that you need but we do vet them to make sure that they can afford uh, any listings that they're bidding on. So there's never, there's never any issue where 
someone bids on it and they actually can't buy it. Um, you know, so, so there is a bit of a betting process from there where, you know, we will approve you um, to just, you know, we just have to make sure you can actually buy what you say you're willing to buy. Do any artists accept a, uh, an asset from a, uh, a buyer? In other words, um, almost like a trade, I'll trade you four songs for these four songs. We've never done that. That's that's a interesting thought. Like you know, like that could be something pretty cool. Like mm -hmm. yeah, we've never done a, a trade, but you know, what we would eventually like to build out is is to have our marketplace be like this sort of all-encompassing uh you know ability for creators to to kind of like buy sell and trade within the ecosystem so that could be something uh you know at some point in the future that could be interesting mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one thing that's interesting and you used the word passive income a little while ago and i was gonna ask you about that because one of the differences between what hypnosis and primary wave for example or around hill are doing right now is they're buying these catalogs at huge multiples with the intent to really market like crazy certain songs or really market these catalogs to drive revenue. So they might be thinking it'll take us 20 years to earn this back. But if we really market it well and think and put together some good ideas, we can turn that 20 years maybe into 10 or six or whatever. So that's active catalog, but these are passive investments. So can you explain what you mean by passive investments? And I should also say you've used the term IP a few times, and that's intellectual property for our listeners who are a little unsure of what that meant. But can you talk about these investments as passive investments, what the investor can and can't do with them? Yeah, they're, well, they're, they're passive investments because the investor's not looking, they're not looking to do anything with them besides just earn a, a yield or a return. You know, they're not gonna tell you what you, you know, should be doing creatively. They're not, they're not gonna try and go put your songs in a movie trailer or anything like that. They're, they're literally just, you know, they're parking their money into uh, an asset that is just gonna give them a return, uh, a steady return year over year. Uh, but they're not looking to, to put any work in really. Uh, and, and, you know, that's, that's I think, it's good for the artist because a again like you have control no one's really telling you you know what you can and can't be doing no one's no one's gonna you know one day pop up and you're gonna see your song in some commercial for <laughs> you know like men balding product or something you know something that you just don't want to be affiliated with uh but it also offers the benefit of you not giving up ownership you know and, that, and that's the thing like once you know again with like the hypnosis model you know your life's work is gone. It's, it's, you know, whatever, you know, and, and there's different reasons. Maybe at some point you don't care, you know, when you're, when you're 70 something years old, uh, you know, and you've earned hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, like, ah, fuck it, let me get my check for 300 million. You know, I don't really care what happens at this point, but you know, everyone has different motiva motivations and most artists that I speak with, uh, you know, owning and, and controlling their, their creative assets is, is key and not many of them get to do that. And so, you know, that's, that's part of, uh, you know, I think what makes our model work. Now the, um, if I was an investor in a song for a songwriter's royalty, I would have to do my homework to find out, for instance, uh, are they published through Sony ATV or are they published for a small house or what's the, um, 
what's the future look like, not only in the multiples, but what was the future look like for this song to be synced or just used in general? Mm -hmm. Well, well, we do a lot of that homework for you. So, you know, as an investor, you'll come in and you'll have the data that you need to make those decisions. We'll show you the sources of income, where everything's coming from, you know, what, exactly what rights you're getting, along with the historical data of like, this is what it made last year, the year before, the year before that, here's where it was synced already, here's what, you know, like all those things will, you'll be able to see. And, you know, give, it gives you a pretty informed, uh, you can make an informed decision of like, okay, like I think this is what's, you know, I feel pretty confident that this is how it's gonna go over the next few years. So, you know, this is why I wanna invest in it. But we do, that's, that's part of our service. That's what we, you know, that's, that's what we provide to the investors and to the sellers is, you know, we'll, we'll do that data, we'll run that analysis for you for free, you know, which if you were to go hire uh, a firm to do that for you, you know, you're probably gonna pay like $30,000, $50,000, you know, just to get that we do it for free. Let's say I wrote handful, let's say I have a decent catalog of songs, or whether it's full or partial ownership, and I auction some off for 10 years through you guys. Does that now preclude me? Is that an exclusive? Suppose in year two, after I've auctioned it off and, and it's Dr. Stavon Marconi bought them for like 10 years. Um, in year two of this hypnosis or somebody comes to me and says, we're gonna give you $50 million for your catalog or whatever. Am I not allowed to do anything with those particular songs or uh, be because I've auctioned them off to him for X amount of years? Uh, have you run into that situation is there some is it an exclusive deal that he for him for that much time or would he benefit from my sale and he would get all that revenue basically the percentage on that song you know what i'm saying yeah yeah um we have not run into that but it, it is something that um you know there is a bil uh, an ability potentially to uh take your assets you know out of the deal early there'll be you know some sort of penalty, you know, fee for that. It's sort of like, you know, if you have an IRA and you need to take your money out of the IRA, you're going to pay a penalty for that. So, you know, we don't want to get into the habit of investors, you know, investing in this, expecting one thing and then getting, to, because then that's going to, that eliminates trust. Part, you know, part of the whole reason why all this works is there's trust on both sides. So we don't want to, you know, get into the the, the business of like, oh, let's, you know, let's do this deal. But if something better comes, you could do that too, you know, but there, there are mechanisms, like I said, you know, some sort of fee where it's a win-win, you know, we, we figure out a way to, to, to make sure the investor doesn't get uh, screwed over, but then also the artist has the ability to do what they need to do. So. I would guess also you could, some math could be done and the investor, if they own at that for that 10 years, they actually own or maybe is this technically ownership or is it kind of like leasing if it's not if it's temporary so they don't own it so it's a lease yeah yeah it's a lease so yeah. so, okay. so i mean it's essentially it's uh you know the way it would work is it's a letter of direction you know what i mean for for a period of term uh, a time so if you do a 10 year deal or a 30 year deal just during that time instead of you know bmi paying you they're now paying us and we pay out the investor or that you know they pay the investor but it's just like a letter of direction so you know it's it's there's no ownership it's just kind of where the funds are being routed to All right interesting okay all right no need to because i was thinking i just keep thinking about that and how the uh 
the investor actually could just make a, a mint basically because they could say, okay, I bought six of, you know, even three songs, whatever percentage you're getting X amount of money to sell that. Just give me my percentage of that based upon the ownership of these individual songs and the ratio between that and what you sold for, you know, so maybe that's a way to work it out too. I yeah. There, I mean, that, that's what I'm saying. We haven't actually yeah. um, run into that, but there's, there's ways to, there's always a way to, to work, work out a deal. Because the people who you're, and I, and I don't think you, you're allowed to give names and I, I wouldn't ask you to, but the, the, your clientele of customers, not the investors, but those who own the assets, it's not Bob Dylan, Lindsey Buckingham, Stevie Nicks. It, it's, it's more of, I think you said it earlier, it's, it's Marconi who owns, wrote two songs, you know, back in the, you know, 1971, you know, it's, it's these people who, who own 6% of Dua Lipa's Don't Stop Now. It's, it's that kind. It's not Paul Simon, I guess. Right? Yeah. That For the most part, I mean, you know, and that's, that's, that's our target market really is to pay attention to the, you know, that we call like the 99% of the industry that, you know, like, like all these other companies are focused on the 1% of artists and performers that are already super successful mega stars, you know, all that stuff. And, you know, they're giving them these huge checks, but on the back of all those hit songs, I mean, even any song that's on the chart, I think, you know, there's an average of like five to seven writers on, on every song that's like on the, on the top, like billboard top 100. So, you know, while, you know, Lady Gaga might be the performer and, you know, the dream might be the main producer on it. There's still, you know, four or five other writers under the, that, that have all contributed and we're in the studio and they may have 5%, 10%, 20%, you know, and those are the ones that we are kind of targeting because no one's paying it, you know, no one's paying attention to them. They're the ones that have been left out of this, you know, sort of gold rush for catalog deals. And um, yeah, th that that's our focus, but we're not, you know, we're not adverse to, to, to going after the huge catalogs either. It's like, you know, we've, we've had some of those, you know, like the Cage the Elephant deal we did, you know, we've done uh, Slipknot, Eminem, uh, you know, there's, there's been some bigger deals that, you know, we're, we're not gonna turn those down, but we, you know, we, we do wanna focus on uh, what I think the, the bigger, uh, the bigger opportunity for, for artists and investors are, which is the, you know, that 99%. Mm -hmm. Are your commissions basically the same as these guys do with the big deals? Uh, what do you mean? Well, the, well, the big deals, they're just, they're just buying them. So they're now only, they're just owning them. <laughs> well, uh, I was saying somebody must have broken, brokered. A broker, yeah. Well, our, yeah, our fee, I mean, we usually take 15% of the deal um, mm -hmm. on the transaction. So, you know, it's similar to, I guess, like what some of the, just the brokers out there are getting for, you know, whatever these deals are. But um, yeah, that's, that's our standard transaction fee. Yeah, it's a little bit less, I think, than a, an actual auction house like Sotheby's or, yeah. or one of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was an interesting article I read probably three weeks ago. I wish I, I wish I had it because I just thought of it now in which there are a lot of artists because we're talking about a lot of it is publishing. You know, like, you're also selling master rights, I would assume, too. You know, it's 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 IP, you know, it's, it could be either. So um, but I'm thinking publishing specifically at this moment, there are a number of people who have publishing deals 
and they've written hit songs. And in the age of streaming, if those songs aren't getting in big sync deals or, you know, films, commercials, things like that, it's a, it's a song that might be getting 100 million streams, 200 million streams. But if you own 6% of the publishing of that, you're not earning a whole lot of money. And your publisher's not giving you a whole lot because they might have given you an advance, but there's really not a whole lot of money there. And there are a lot of artists who are really upset with the, their deals with publishers these days. So I would think that there is actually a really big market of, like if you go to the global top 50, right now on Spotify and you multiply those 50 times probably minimum minimum five artists per song um, that's mm-hmm. a pretty good average you're talking that's 250 potential clients maybe subtract 50 of the headliner it's still like 200 potential clients right there is that yeah. something that you guys look at and okay uh, you know and go after them that kind of thing uh, yeah, that's that's part of how we target some uh, some of like the outreach that we do. We'll, we'll you know we'll do what we call like a co-writer campaign, and um, you know even just within some of the the deals that we've done, we could go back and look at who are the other writers on these songs, you know, like and and we could then we know for sure what we could get them because we did the deal for someone else that's on the song. We already have the analysis, so we could just go to them and say, look, hey, you know. So and so, one of your co-writers, we did a deal with, and and they made X amount percentage, you know, above whatever, and you know, we could do the same thing for you. Are you interested? So that that's that's part of how we uh, we do some outreach, I guess, like with internal deals that we already have that on. Mm-hmm. But you know, we do also uh, you know look at some of the things like you're saying, where all right, well, what songs are are out there? Like what song? songwriters might be on some of these these bigger songs that are you know they're not the headliner but they they have percentage you know of, of a lot of uh, great assets and no one's probably even reaching out to them we should we should reach out mm-hmm. who's your competition um it's it's interesting because we're like kind of in like this hybrid space where we're between like the the hypnosis round hills of the world and also kind of uh you know, the other companies that don't do catalog deals, but offer like advances or financing for artists on like the the smaller end, but it's still a different model. You know, again, like ours is uh, like, we don't, you don't have to pay back anything with us. Like a lot of the, a lot of the, the smaller company, the, you know, the companies that focus on the smaller artists um, that are in this space are kind of like, almost like payday loans, you know, in effect Mm -hmm. where, you know, it's a crazy, interest rate essentially that you're getting and it's you know like they're giving you a loan or an advance that you have to pay back and it's actually a pretty shitty deal um you know the difference with us is there's nothing to pay back it's you know if if an investor invests and it's a bad investment they just lose money that's that's all there is you're never you're never kind of bound to that uh so we're kind of in between these companies that are offering advances for your music versus, you know, the hypnosis of the world that are straight up buying catalogs, but there's, there's no like direct comparison uh, from a model to, to what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's 1996. <laughs> you're, you're playing in your band mm-hmm. in Jersey, wherever you're playing, you know, you guys are doing it. It's hardcore. In between sets, you're thinking at some point I'm going to be the CEO of Royalty Exchange. <laughs> that was on your mind, wasn't it? Almost 30, yeah, you know, 25 years ago. 
Definitely was. Yeah, that was that was all I was thinking. I was like, when the hell can I get off this stage and stop fucking jumping around like an asshole? And, you know, when can yeah. I when, when can I live a normal life? When can I stop sleeping in vans? All right. So how did you do? Because th there, you know, in our school and all around, there are a lot of people listening who are uh, who are artists, who uh, at some point most of them will transition from being an artist to something else you know uh, explain your transition from being the artist to going into management starting the label creating jingle punks to where how you got to now there it was a lot of pivots mm -hmm. how did you how did you do it all what made you go from one to the other necessity <laughs> um you know uh those who can't do teach right that's that's the isn't that the saying um you know, so yeah, I mean, basically, when you start out as an artist, or, you know, in a band or whatever, you have all these uh, visions of grandeur that are like, oh, I'm going to be the biggest thing ever in the world. And, you know, the odds are that's probably not going to happen. Um, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue that. It doesn't mean, you know, like, you should definitely, you only get one shot, you know what I mean? And, and even for me, at the time, you know, I had a, a choice between, you know, going to college and kind of focusing on like a real job type thing or, you know, going on tour and I chose going on tour. Uh, but that gave me a different type of education that I wouldn't have been able to get in college. Like, even if, even if I was studying music business and all that kind of stuff, I think, you know, the hands-on experience is, uh, you know, extremely valuable and it, it, it's going to be able to inform you and give you a perspective no matter where you go in your career, but you should also, pay attention and like learn, you know, even, even if you are in a band or, or, or an aspiring artist, there's things you could be learning that whole time where it's, whether or not it works out or not, you know, works or not for you, you, you didn't lose those years. You've actually, you know, you were essentially kind of studying. Uh, and that's how, that's how I looked at it. Partly because I was, uh, you know, like I'm, I'm cheap. So I didn't want to pay people to, to like do shit for me. So I was like, I'm going to just do it myself. And I'm also a control freak and you know, some of that, but I was kind of like the business guy in the band. And so I took it upon myself to learn the music business and, and, you know, do everything. I was, you know, essentially the whole team for the band. So I got Donald Passman's book, you know, everything you need to know about the music business. I learned contracts and this and that. And, I would book the shows and you know, that taught me how to, how to book a tour. And, you know, I, I made the merch even down to designing the merch. So I learned, you know, Photoshop and Illustrator and all that. I learned how to make the merch. I learned how to price it. I learned how to promote. And, you know, like you kind of, it, it takes you through all the different aspects of uh, a team really, you know, like that eventually when I became a manager, I already had this foundation and that's sort of why I became a manager because it was also like, all right, I didn't even go to college at this point. So I'm not going to get it. Like no one's going to hire me. I don't have a degree or really experience. I could be like, yeah, I was on tour the past five years, like hire me. Um, but as a manager, I knew I could take these experiences that I experienced firsthand and <clears throat> apply lessons to artists that I'd be working with and, and like really just have them learn from my mistakes and, and things that I saw like, this didn't work out for me because of this reason. So now I know in the future how to approach that differently. So when I started managing artists, I had that experience, you know, from my own, from my own career that I could apply to that. And, you know, being a manager doesn't require much, you know, in terms of like 
you don't need a degree. You just need hustle and drive and to find, you know, talent that you believe in and need to know how to like make deals, but you should educate. There's a lot of, especially now, like you could go on YouTube and learn a lot. You could Google things. You, there's a, there's a ton of resources to kind of give you that basis, that foundation of knowing the business, but then you really learn it from doing it. So as a manager, I got deeper into all that. I started, you know, now I'm really negotiating contracts with record labels. I'm really, I'm dealing with booking agents. I'm dealing with lawyers. I'm dealing with, so then from that point, you know, as a manager, you get this holistic uh, education of the music business anyway, because you're sort of the, the, the CEO of the company. You know, like if the artist is the company and they're the owner of the company, you're the CEO now that has to run that company and you have to coordinate all the different divisions and different teams to, to get everyone working together. So as a manager, you get the best overall education. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you know, okay, uh, like, the business model of being a manager isn't great because there's no security. You know, you kind of, you make, you make a good percentage, but it's, you know, every day you could get fired, you know, any morning. <laughs> and anytime the artist is pissed off about something, you're out of a job. Uh, sorry, kid. So, uh, you know, as a label that seemed like a more secure type model for where I was trying to go in my career at that time, I, I didn't want to have to be traveling all, you know, every day, 200 days a year not sleeping and being in the studio till five in the morning you know there's a time for that and there's a, there's an era where like okay i'm young and i'm single and i'm doing that and it's fun but once you know you get married you have kids i'm like i need to do something different uh and so i started a label but i was able to start the label because i knew a lot about the business from all my prior experience and then you know the label sort of morphed into getting into uh you know, helping out different startups. Jingle Punks was a, a startup that was a, a music kind of tech uh, idea that was on like the publishing side of things. And I got to learn from that and seeing how to raise money and deal with investors and board of directors and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, it just, it all starts to, to compound and build on, on top of each other. Like you're not gonna learn everything day one and you're gonna have to expect to make mistakes and stuff. And, you know, you, you just got to learn from those mistakes and they'll make them again. And that's, you know, and that's kind of how you, you know, you get through the business. Yeah. Well, Dave and I both feel that um, that experience is so important. We both come from that area. Not only, of course, we have to um, satisfy the academy with having degrees, but I was on Epic Records in the early 70s and toured everywhere and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And Ace McDonald's and Motel yeah. Six and so on. <laughs> and Dave had a big career with Polygram and Universal. So we don't look at hiring people that go right from college without, especially in this business, yeah. without having to uh, have done something where you know what, a great idea what's going on. Exactly. Um, yeah, you sound like you, you weren't the guy that stood in the back and just got high all the time, but you were interested in well, what does this contract say what is this you know th that sort of thing you sort of had an innate feel that you wanted to know who was screwing you who wasn't screwing you exactly uh, yeah. instead of believing everybody as long as you got the next joint yeah it's it's your career you know the thing at the, at the end of the day it's it's your career you know what i mean so like no one is gonna care more about it than you so as an artist you know, I get it. You know, there's a lot of artists that are just sort of, you know, they don't want to deal with the business side of it and all that, but like, 
too bad. This is, you know, like, this is the career you chose. Like you, you better educate yourself or don't get mad when someone's you over, you know, like, like, so I think there, there's a degree of, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a cop-out sometimes when artists, uh, I, I think, are just like, ah, oh, like, yeah, I don't care about, I don't want to know about contracts. It's like, you don't want to know this thing that's going to affect the rest of your life? Like, why, why would you not? So, um, yeah, and I never, like, I never did drugs or even really drank either. So it was kind of like, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the fun I had was like figuring out how to make money. <laughs> There's a story that we learned about you when you were managing Lil Dicky and you, you were able to get Fetty Wap, but you had to get some money for him, like within a certain amount of time and it had to be cash. Oh, yeah. Tell us that story. Yeah, so um, when I first was started working with Lil Dicky and we were making his first, out, you know, his first album, part of the, the strategy behind that and the positioning was, you know, like I, I wanted to make sure that he was uh, seen as like this credible rapper because, you know, he was, he was coming from so far left field with like his image and the type that he was talking about that I felt like, you know, it would be important to position him in a way where people would, you know, see him in the same light as guys like Fetty Wap or, you know, any of the rappers that were kind of like on the charts at that time. And so, uh, yeah, this one song in particular, Save That Money, which was his first single, um, just thought it would be such an interesting like juxtaposition to have like these rappers that are known for excess and all the like, you know, just kind of bawling out and all that shit to be on this song about being frugal and saving money. And, you know, so we just thought like from a, from a comedic standpoint, it'd be really interesting. Um, execution of that becomes yeah, it's it's always like the idea is great, but how do you all right now how, how do you execute on it? And with anything in music, you know, especially in in the hip hop world, it's been, you know you you're flying by the seat of your pants. You don't know you know, like you don't know what's going to happen. And so uh, at the time, you know, Dicky is unknown. You know, no one really cares about him. He's this weird guy that's on the internet rapping about in his penis. And, you know, like, it's just, it makes it a really hard sell. You know what I mean? Uh, and so uh, I use the Jersey connection uh, because everyone from Jersey loves each other and wants to look out. I felt like, all right, Fetty Wap's from Jersey. I'm going to talk to his manager, tell him I'm from Jersey and, you know, like we'll hit it off and we'll be able to make something happen. And that's sort of what happened, you know. So I ended up getting in touch with his manager, and gave him the whole spiel. Of course, they were a little uh, reluctant about like, what's this guy's name again? His name's Little Dick. Like, what the fuck? Like, what kind of is this? Like, and I'm like, nah, it's just funny. It's he's like he tells he's like comedian, you know. Like, they're like, all right, whatever. Just we'll do it. Uh, Ten thousand dollars. And this was kind of Fetty Wap was just starting to blow up. He hadn't really become like the superstar yet. You know, his song Trap Queen, this was, it was on the rise, but I knew by the time Dickie's song came out and hit that Fetty Wap would be huge at that time. So it was kind of like I was buying low at that point. Uh, and, you know, 10,000, I was like, all right, it's worth it. You know, let's do it. But, it, you know, the manager was like, but you got to get it to me tonight and it has to be in cash. And I'm like, man. And, and at the time it was, uh, I think it was like Memorial Day weekend and I was managing Tyga and he had a show in Europe somewhere and we were leaving that day to, to go to like France. 
And like, literally like I'm about to, you know, my flight's in a few hours and this guy's like, yeah, we're going to do it tonight. We need the money tonight. Got to be cash. You got to drop it off. And I'm like, can I just, can I wire it to you? Like I'm, I'm leaving. I'm, I got, you know, like, nah, we don't want any wires. I'm like, how, how am I going to do this? And I couldn't tell Tiger like, Hey, sorry. I'm, you know, I'm not coming. I'm canceling, you know, like go be on your own. Cause I'm managing him and he's sort of my main source of income at the time. So I can't, you know, I, so now I'm, I have the dilemma of how do I, how do I make this work? Luckily, uh, you know, we're in the, the era where technology rules and, and there's a thing called Uber. So, you know, what, uh, what I did, what I did was I figured, all right, like if I'm going to roll the dice, let's roll the dice. So I, you know, I, I went and got $10,000 cash, called an Uber, had the Uber driver. I told the Uber driver, listen, I got to have you drop this off. And, you know, I, I was in Manhattan at the time, Betty Wops teams in Patterson, New Jersey. And, uh, I was like, hey, uh, I need you to drop this off to someone in Patterson. Meanwhile, like, I'd never met Fetty Wap's manager ever. Like, we, we, we only talked one time on the phone. I don't even know, I don't even know where the fuck I'm sending this Uber driver to go. Uh, and, you know, on top of that, like I said, I, I don't know these guys. They, they, they could just be like, oh, yeah, we never got the cash. Like, sorry. Um, and, you know, it was, it was a roll of the dice. So put them in the Uber. I, I go to the airport. I'm kind of like watching the app. I'm watching the car, you know, all right, he's almost there. <laughs> and like, you know, like they got to go meet this guy, and, you know, ends up, he gets the money. I, you know, I, I text him when I see the Uber got there. I'm like, oh, is everything good? Yep. Now, all right, he's got the money. Is he going to do, <laughs> is he going to do the feature? You know, like how do you, that's always, that's always kind of like the next hurdle where usually, you know, most artists, like if they say they're going to do it, they'll do it. But sometimes it gets busy it could take months, you know, or it could just get so busy that eventually, you know, they just decide it's not worth it to do it anymore. And, you know, you, you just, you take that chance, but, um, you know, luckily, uh, Fetty Wap and his team were, they're, they're men of their word and they, they got the money. Fetty Wap did his, uh, his feature. They, they sent it back the next day and, and we had it. The tricky part was when it came time to do the video, now Fetty Wap is a superstar. Now we can't get him to do the video because it's like, first of all we can't even pin the guy down like he's he's moving everywhere you know it's like his his song is he has like three songs on the chart like top 10 at this time and it was really just blowing up and uh you know now he's charging like a hundred thousand dollars for a verse we we got it for ten thousand so they're looking at us like you got a discount like we're not doing your video and 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 so i'm just like guys we need to get him in the video just for like a minute just tell me where you are we'll come to you and uh it was, you know, it wasn't necessarily that they didn't want to, they did want more money to do the video, more money than we even paid for the feature, which, you know, at that point, we, we had no choice, we had to do it, but it was a matter of just pinning them down. And again, being in the era of technology, I just stalked their Instagram to kind of see where they were going to be at all the time. Cause he was, he was playing shows like every, you know, doing clubs every single night. And I'm kind of seeing where in the country they are. And one night I saw that they were going to be in LA performing at some club. And so I hit his manager. I'm like, Hey, you in LA? He's like, yeah. I was like, are you guys performing tonight? He's like, yeah, you want to come? I'm like, yeah. Meanwhile, I'm in New Jersey. Uh, and, and, but, um, but I told Dickie and you know, the camera crew and everyone, I'm like, Hey, Betty Wop's going to be at this club tonight. He's performing at midnight, show up with the cameras. If and let's get, you know, let's just have the DJ play the song and we'll just get whatever we get live. We get it and we'll use that edit it however we need to. And so I tell the manager, hey, like, we're going to come with the, the cameras and, we, you know, we just play the song once and we'll get it. And he, and he was like, ah, all right, whatever. So 
ended up kind of ambushing him at the club. And uh, Fetty Wap didn't even know, like, Fetty, first of all, Fetty Wap didn't even remember this, that he did this song. Like, cause it was such like a whirlwind at that time. He's like, cause this, who's this guy? Like, what's this, what's this white guy doing here? Uh, and, uh, but it ended up working out and like Fetty was super cool about it. They, they ended up playing the song like 10 times in a row at that point. And he just did whatever he had to do, you know, which is, is usually the case. Like once you kind of get everyone there, it's easy, but it's, it's the whole process. It's like herding kittens. You know what I mean? It's like, you got to get everyone, once you get everyone together, it'll work out. But that process is usually the, the hard part. But it was a, it was a, uh, you know, a battle. Of, it was just straight attrition. You know, it was kind of like, where's he going to be? Texting him, hey, uh, you know, follow up, follow up, stalking people, and you know, eventually you get it done. And then it ended up being uh, a hit single, and the video, I think, you know, it's hundreds of millions of views, and it, it, the song went platinum, and it set Dickie on his uh, trajectory to become a, a star, and and set him up for the rest of his career, really. So. It was worth it in the end. <laughs> Three quick follow-ups to, to the story. The first is, how did you get that? Where did you find that $10,000 so quickly in the beginning? And when you gave it to the Uber driver, did you tell the Uber driver, here's $10,000, deliver this to this person? Or just say, I have a package, please deliver it. Uh, so the $10,000, it's actually funny. I had it just so happened that I ended up getting $10,000 cash like a couple days before because Tyga did some like walkthrough at a club and the club paid him $10,000 cash. And so I had the cash already on me, luckily from a Tyga show. So it was kind of like, Oh, like, you know, it was kind of Tyga's money. <laughs> and I just like, oh, I'll reimburse it. And like, you know, got, you know, I ended up, you know, whatever I had, I, I had the money in my account, but I didn't have cash like handy like that. Um, and no, I didn't tell the Uber driver what it was. I just told them, you know, I put it in like a FedEx, you know, envelope and sealed it. And just told them like, hey, you dropped this off somewhere. And uh, yeah, it worked out. <laughs> and, and then finally, um, that's interesting. No, no contracts of any sort between you and the other manager for, you know, getting him on the feature. This was strictly, here's cash. He's in it. You was he signed at that point to three hundred? Also, were you dealing with three hundred to get him on this feature and all that? Yeah, well, that's so. That's uh, that's the whole. That's a whole other side of it. Where no, we didn't do contracts um, because they didn't want to do contracts. And and like, hey, I'm not one to get caught up on the details. Okay, let's just do it. <laughs> you know, and I, you know, that's always been my approach. Is I'll figure it out after, you know what I mean? Let's, let's just get it done and, and I'll sort it out after the fact. If you get too caught up on some of the details, sometimes nothing gets done, which may seem counterintuitive, but you know, it's, it seems to always work for me. Yes, he was signed to 300. And the funny part is <laughs> once the Dickie song started taking off, uh, I get a text from one of the main people at 300 who I don't want to name names, but uh, you know, he was like, hey, he's like, little dicky and i'm like yeah and i'm th i'm thinking he's calling he's texting me to like congrats like blowing up he's like yeah so he's not cleared so you got to take that record down and i was like ah, oh. i was like well i cleared him through his manager you know because because in reality fetty wap was uh was signed to his his managers had a production company rgf productions fetty wap was signed to rgf and rgf did a jv with 300 so Technically, I didn't need 300 sign off. I, I had Fetty Wap's manager sign off and I, and, and I was relying on that, that, you know, he was going to make it good if, if there was any issues. 
300 tried to assert the fact that like, no, this, he's our artist. You didn't clear him, take it down. And, you know, I basically ignored them and said, no, I'm not taking it down. And it became a little bit of a problem. And like the part of the issue for me was I'm, I was distributed through ADA, which is Warner, you know, Warner Music Group. 300 was also distributed through Warner Music Group. So my label services team at Warner was like, we can't work this record anymore. We got to back off. Like, like this is giving us heat internally. So I had a, I had a record that was starting to go up the charts on radio. And now the radio team is like backing out of, of, of working this because there is some internal politics happening, which ended up being like a, a blessing in disguise because then I, I hired my own radio team and I found it was actually the guy who was working Rich Homie Kwan's record, which at the time, you know, Rich Homie Kwan was on the record on the Dickie song as well. So I asked his manager, hey, who, who do you have working your record? Because his record was doing well. He connected me with uh, my guy Lionel, who, you know, has been with me ever since and, and is one of the best in the business. And uh, I would have never got introduced to him if, if Warner didn't get all weird about the 300s and ended up being even better because we, we ended up working it to being a top 10 record and uh at radio and then everything ended up getting sorted out internally and then the warner team tried to be like yeah look we did such a great time you know like they try to start taking credit for it but meanwhile they're the ones that backed off it because of politics mm -hmm. but you know yeah that 300 tried to to flex and tried to send some cease and desists and uh you know being that i you know, I'm independent. Like no one, no one could fire me. Like, all right, you want to sue me? Take me to court. Like, what are you gonna do? Like, you know, that, that was sort of the approach that I took. Like, all right, you gonna really sue me over this? They were, they were actually pissed because they wanted to sign Little Dicky, and I was managing them at the time. We didn't sign with 300. We ended up just doing our own, you know, independent thing. And so they were, they were trying to kind of like punish me a little bit for that. And you know, they, they just didn't realize like, listen, I'm from Jersey. I don't even care what you say. Like, you know what I mean? And like, and, and, but it ended up getting worked out and, and I have like a good relationship with the 300 guys now, but it, at the time, you know, they tried to, they tried to squash this before it even got started. Luckily I'm not a, a rule follower, so it, it didn't work. Well, we just broke some rules cause we went over time. Yes, we but did. It's worth it though, because that was one awesome story. <laughs> yeah. It's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. So anyone, yeah, anyone, anyone in the business that's listening out there, don't get follow rules. Don't sign contracts. And not. It's like everything you shouldn't do. I'm, I'm, I'm like giving examples of like I've done. It's only rock and roll. <laughs> but that's what it is. It is, it, you know, it is rock and roll. Like what are we talking about here? You know? Yeah. And, and, you know, I just, that has been one of my just guiding sort of uh, philosophies is just like ask for uh, forgiveness, not permission. <laughs> you know, that, and that like, most of the time, if you ask for permission, people are going to tell you no. If you ask for forgiveness, you'll smooth it over, and then you got, you know, you kind of got what you needed out of it. I think this was great. I think a lot of people listening just through that story learned about fifteen different lessons. So uh, I learned some stuff, and it is really, really great. So we really appreciate Aunt Martini. Thanks very much for hanging. Yeah, it was great. One more, more. Thank you, guys. It was great to have you, Dr. Stavon. Thank you. And thank you, my co-host. And at the end of every show, and you know what we say at the end of every show? It's not hello. We say, Adios! Adios! I'm tired of fighting with myself. I'm tired of living in this living hell. I am tired of
convincing myself I'm not I'm so cold Someone activate these bones Too weak to stand on my own You need to get up, shut up Lose what you can't control So here's to you You're still a broken lamp on the bedroom floor When you Had too much to think Here's to you All the afternoons with the curtains pulled removed Dancing with the pain Here's to you I'm tired of convincing myself I'm not tired